All right, so, um, can you tell me something I really didn't need to know? Hey, Mom, tell me something I didn't need to know. So how about let's learn something we really don't need to know. Welcome back, Hannah. Oh, my goodness. Has it already been a whole week? Yes. Yes. We are once again at Tell Me Something I Didn't Need to Know, entertaining each other and anyone else who chooses to listen to our quirkiness. Well, yay. I hope that lots of people listen. All uh, over the world. I hope that everyone is as entertained by us as we are. Oh, if you're not, find yourself a really good drink. Start us over. It'll be much funnier the next time around. That's right. How are you today? Anything uh, new and exciting in your I'm life? I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. Yeah, it's just good. It's December. I know. December. I know. This year is almost over. That is crazy. Crazy. I feel like the older we are, the older we get, the faster time goes. Most people say that. I don't know if it's because we're busier. We are very busy. But, man, it's crazy. Life is good, though. It is. Yay. So, I'm Hannah Green. I'm Mary Swartz. Yay. All right, Mary. Yes. to tell our listeners. Yes. What we are drinking. Oh, my goodness. Um, we were introduced to this way back. Were we in Kentucky or Tennessee or um, something? I No, I think we were in Kentucky. Maybe Indiana. I don't I know. I think it was uh, Kentucky. Uh, Gene Ferris Vineyard. Okay. Um, yeah. An awesome dude. Oh, one of the best bartenders we've probably ever had. Yeah, and well, he, he remembered me. You're very memorable. Um, We are drinking lavender margaritas. And not only are they beautiful, but they're really good. Outside of Lexington, Kentucky. Kentucky! Yes. Yes. He was an amazing, amazing bartender. It was a really interesting story about how he got there. Yeah, because he actually got there by accident. Yeah. And he's really good at what he does, and he's such a people person. And Oh, yeah. my gosh, he's amazing. And he Absolutely wasn't bad amazing. on the eyeballs either. No. <laughs> No, he definitely wasn't. <laughs> so, lavender margaritas. It's um, some lavender simple syrup. I used a honey tequila. Oh, it's so which good. Which I think makes it a little bit sweeter than we're used to. It is a little on the sweet side. I didn't but, but take it into also, consideration, but... But it also makes it uh, definitely... I, I'm drinking it a little slower because it is sweeter. Yeah, it is sweeter. I think if maybe if I'd have gone half honey and half regular tequila, that might have helped. But um, so you have your tequila, you have your simple syrup, some orange caraco, and just a splash of lime juice. Really simple. Yeah, um, it's delicious. Yeah, delicious, delicious. Hell yes. All right. All right. Fact of the week. Ready? <laughs> yes. Bring it on. Okay. All right. Fruit stickers are edible. All those stickers. That you peel off of your green peppers and your apples and everything else. Every single one of them is edible. Yeah, well, there's a woman that connect, collects the ones off the bananas. That is true. She that has like 40,000 of them. Is true. The stickers are actually regulated by the FDA because they are edible. Oh, that is very interesting. Yeah. All right, well. Not that I'm going to go out and eat them because I probably never will, but. Mine is also food related. Okay. A girl. No way. Once turned orange from drinking too much Sunny Delight. How much? Okay, how much Sunny Delight do you have to drink to turn orange? That has to be a crap freaking ton. One and a half liters a day. Oh, okay, how long does she drink it for? Don't know, but the, um, the company used to use, I don't know if they still do, but they used beta carotene. 
which beta carotene is actually uh, a vitamin. Okay. But it is found in carrots, and that's what they were using to color the drink. And when you ingest beta carotene at large levels, just like when you feed your baby too much squash and too many sweet potatoes and too many carrots, they start to turn orange. Yeah, guess what? If you drink a liter and a half of, of Sunny Delight a day, you also can turn orange. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, that was a little like, I was like, what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did not know that. Yeah. Yep. All righty. Craziness, craziness. Always. There's always craziness. That's why we'll never run out of stuff to talk about. You know, I actually sell beta carotene at work. Yeah. But I've never looked at it, so I don't know whether or not it, like, are the pills orange? You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. Venice, Italy. Yes. When you say Venice, Italy, what do you think of? The canals. The canals. Food. We're going to talk about the canals. Painting. We're going to talk about the canals. Yeah. The canals of Venice, Italy, a major mode of transportation from getting from here to there in the crowded, cramped city. Yes. They're like the highways you and I get onto to go to the next city, the grocery store, work, or just for visiting. The canals are crowded themselves. Some would say they're overcrowded. And in 2018, the mayor of Venice banned any personal watercraft from the canals to help with the overcrowding and the snarling up of everyday necessary canal traffic. This meant no paddle boards, no kayakers, basically no recreational use of the canals. Two tourists from Australia have been fined $1,509 apiece for surfboarding on the canals, and their boards were seized and taken away. Oh. Not only that, but the mayor wants to see them prosecuted for, quote, harming the image of Venice. Oh, what? Jesus Christ. To which I say, what the fuck? Oh, my God. I need a drink. The mayor publicly called the two tourist imbeciles, saying that they were making a mockery of his city, which I don't understand how that's a mockery. I don't. And the mayor declared that the canals of Venice were not Disneyland. I think he needs to unsqueeze those butt cheeks and let himself loose a little. I was going to say, it sounds like someone has a corn cob shoved up his ass. (laughs) I was trying to be a little more. I was trying to be nicer about that than saying he was way too anal. But now that we've covered that subject... (laughs) And so, I don't think they buttered it before they shoved it up there. It might be dried. Like you put out for deer feed. So my next question is. Yes. Is it warm enough in there to pop it? No, it is not. Okay. However, it might be a good way to know if he ever gets sick and has a fever. Okay. All, All right. right. You ready for a story? I would love to hear a story from you. Okay, this is a little longer than our usual. That's okay. All right. It's quite all right. Gives us more time to drink. Today, you might think at first that I'm confused about which podcast that we are recording. I assure you, I'm not. Sometimes, though, I come across a story that it's really interesting to me, but it kind of blurs the line between the two podcasts. Save it. You can do it on both. This is one of those stories. Ooh. I'll spare you most of the gory details and hopefully leave you shaking your head in disbelief instead. Jesse James. Okay. Name that most people all around the world are familiar with. Yep. One of the most well-known outlaws of the 1800s. Yep. Rode horses, robbed trains, killed people. Born Jesse Woodson James on September 5th, 1847 to Robert and Zerelda James. Robert was a Baptist minister. He was also a commercial hemp farmer, 
with 100 acres, who also was a slave owner. Hmm. The family lived in western Missouri. Robert and Zerelda were also the parents of an older son, Alexander. Alexander was known as Frank. Okay, yeah. And later, they added a daughter named Susan. Robert actually helped to found the William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri, which is to this day a Liberty Arts College. Right. I think I've mm-hmm. heard of it or seen it. Wow. We probably did see it. We've been through Missouri quite mm-hmm. a bit. When Jesse was three years old, Robert died. Oh, okay. He was in California ministering to the gold prospectors there when he passed away. I'm not sure how he died. He just, just know that he passed away. Okay. Now, two years later, Zerelda remarried. She married a man by the name of Benjamin Sims. Not really sure what happened with that marriage, but just a few short years later, in 1885, Zerelda was married for a third time. This time, she married Dr. Reuben Samuel. Zerelda and Reuben added four more children to the family. Sarah, John, Fanny, and Archer. Sorry, Archie. Reuben and Zerelda were also slave owners. They used their slaves in tobacco farming. Now, this was a time of turmoil in the United States. Slavery was an awful and contentious issue that the country was grappling with, and Jesse's family was well-known Confederate sympathizers. They owned slaves. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do what they did and have that lifestyle without them. Right. Many slave owners were Confederate sympathizers. And then the Civil War broke out. In August of 1861, Alexander, also known as Frank, was fighting at the Battle of Wilson's Creek. He fell ill, and he returned to the family home. He wasn't content to just stay home and quietly live on the family farm, though. In 1863, Frank was identified as a member of a guerrilla squad, also known as Bushwhackers. Lovely. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty brutal what they used to do. Lovely. A Union militia company raided the family farm looking for Frank and the group he belonged to. Reuben, the stepdad, was tortured. It was reported that he was briefly hung from a tree during the torture. It's also reported that Jesse was lashed in an attempt to gain information about Frank. Frank, however, got away. Frank joined up with a group of terrible men. This is just, you can't put it any other way. The men he joined up with were terrible. The group was led by a man by the name of William Quantrill, and they were known as Quantrill's Raiders. The name should tell you everything you need to know about them. They were a bunch of violent assholes. Soon... 16-year-old Jesse joined his brother. They were part of a squad of the Raiders led by a man named Felch Taylor. Now, in 1864, Taylor lost his arm to a shotgun blast. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, let me tell you. <laughs> the brothers Jesse and Frank then went on to join a group of men led by Bloody Bill Anderson. Another fitting name. The group wreaked havoc and created carnage wherever they went. That summer, Jesse would suffer his first serious gunshot wound after being shot in the chest. Not a good place to get shot. Especially not then. That didn't stop the group, and it didn't stop Jesse. In fact, it didn't seem to really slow them down much at all. That September, the group was largely responsible for the Centralia Massacre. A train traveling through Centralia, Missouri, carrying home off-duty Union soldiers, was attacked by the group. 22 soldiers were killed, scalped, and dismembered. And soon after that, the group also slaughtered a pursuing regiment, killing more than 100 soldiers. The fuck is wrong with them? Well, that's my first question, okay? But there's so many things to answer that with. But just killing people isn't enough. You have to dismember them. Scalp them. You have to scalp them. You have to, I mean. They were Union soldiers. They deserved it. I have arguments against that, but mm-hmm. we're not going to get into those subjects. And, no. And no. 
I'm trying to not. But this is their stray off topic. This is their mentality. I, yeah, and you and I have a very hard time grasping those kind of mentalities. Yes, we do. That is just that is just insane. The the crimes that the brothers were taking a part in actually caused the family to be ordered by the union to move. They were ordered to move south of union lines, but because they lived in union territory. Right. So now they're going to live in Confederate territory. Well, instead of moving south of the Union lines, they actually moved to Nebraska Territory instead. In October of 1864, Bloody Bill Anderson was killed, and the two brothers split up. Frank headed to Kentucky, Jesse headed to Texas, but Jesse soon returned to Missouri. And in the spring of 1865, Jesse was shot for the second time in the chest, allegedly while trying to surrender to Union troops. Bullshit. Thank you. My thoughts exactly. That man probably doesn't sound like he knew the word surrender. He was just trying to make himself look good. He, of course, (laughs) survived. It's like Jesse was a cat with nine lives. Now, while recovering from his newest gunshot wound, he was nursed by his first cousin, Zerelda, named after his mom. His cousin went by Z, though. Z's attention during his recovery led to a courtship that lasted for years. No. And on April 24th, 1874, no. Jesse married his first cousin, Z. Uh-huh. They went on to have four children. No. A son, Jesse, daughter, Mary, and twins, Gould and Montgomery, who both died as infants. <sighs> Jesse and his brother, Frank, eventually reunited, and they would go on to form their own gang. It's a ridiculously infamous gang that was made up of truly terrible and violent men. They robbed stagecoaches, banks, trains, and even fairs. They seemed to have no fear at all, not caring at all if there were witnesses. They simply killed anyone who got in their way. And if innocent people were killed in the process, well, that was just too bad. They would even go as far as to put on a bit of a show for witnesses, sometimes seemingly simply for the amusements of themselves. They broke gang members out of jail. They didn't seem to be afraid of anyone or anything. Members of the public either loved them or hated them. Now, despite the popular Robin Hood legends that surround the gang to this day, there's absolutely no evidence that the gang shared a single penny of their loot with anyone outside of the gang. This was not a rob the rich and give to the poor. No matter what local, current, popular legends and TV shows and everything else would have you believe. I don't think I ever heard of Jesse James giving... Nope, he didn't give or shit Or helping to... anybody. No, no. The only thing he ever did to help people was help them right into a grave. But isn't he still married? He was married. Okay, still married. Married. Why the public seemed to love the Jesse James gang leaves me unbelievably baffled. Many members of the government and law enforcement, as it was at the time, were frustrated by the gang's activities and their seemingly inability to stop the violence. In 1874... The Pinkerton Agency. We are familiar. We are familiar, yes. The Pinkerton Agency yes. was brought in to stop the James gang. The gang simply continued to elude the agency, which, given their reputation, is also mind-boggling. Yeah. Not only did the gang elude the Pinkerton Agency, the gang actually shot and killed at least two of the agents that were pursuing them. That doesn't surprise me a bit, though. Alan Pinkerton was so enraged by the deaths of his agents that he personally took on the case. Soon after, Pinkerton set up a raid on the family farm, hoping to flush out the brothers. An incendiary device was thrown into the home. It exploded. 
It killed Archie, and it blew off Zeralda's arm. The public was not really very happy with that outcome. Alan Pinkerton always said that the carnage that occurred was never the intent, though. No, from everything I read about him and the research I've done on him, that was not the type of man he was. It was bringing the criminal to protect the innocent. The Missouri governor offered up a reward for Jesse and Frank. That didn't really do much to slow them down, however. In September of 1876, a bank robbery the gang was attempting went horribly wrong, and only the brothers survived and escaped. They surfaced in Tennessee under aliases Thomas Howard and B.J. Woodson. They're like cast with umpteen lives. I know, it's what I said. It's like, how can they be the only ones to come yep. out alive, honestly? Yep, they're the only ones that survived and escaped. That's insane. Now, Frank seemed to want to live a quiet and peaceful life without all of the past violence that he had known. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he just didn't have it in him. Maybe he had a change of heart. No one really knows. Jesse just couldn't resist the draw of the life that he knew, though. By 1879, Jesse had recruited himself a new gang, and he continued on with the crime and the carnage that were a part of his ways. Gang members continued to die. The crimes and the carnage continued to happen. And Jesse, well, Jesse could always find new gang members to bring in. Yeah. By 1882, he had brought in the Ford brothers. He trusted them enough to invite them to live in his home with his family. On the evening of April 3rd, 1882, Jesse and Robert Ford were in the James's living room together. Jesse had his back to Robert, dusting off a photo that was hanging on the wall, when Robert quietly pulled his gun and shot Jesse in the back of the head. Jesse had used up all of his nine lives. Jesse James was 34 years old, and he was dead. Can't say as I'm sympathetic right now. People quickly swarmed the James house, even before the body was removed. They were there, in fact, to see the body, to see... Jesse James. To make sure he was dead. That he was dead. Jesse was officially identified by his two previous gunshot wounds, as well as a partial missing finger that he had lost during a battle over the years. Now, why did Robert Ford shoot Jesse James? Well, the popular belief is that he did it, hoping for both the reward money, as well as amnesty for his crimes with the gang. Instead of a reward, though, Robert Ford and his brother were arrested, and they were charged with murder. They pled guilty and they were sentenced to hang, only to be pardoned by the governor. <laughs> and all of that happened in about 24 hours. Wow. Robert Ford was actually given a small portion of the promised reward. Jesse James' body was put into a wicker traveling basket, and it was placed into an ice coffin with a viewing window. We've seen those. We have. He was available for the public to see. Eventually, his body was placed on a train, where it traveled from St. Joseph of Missouri to Kearney, Nebraska, where his family still lived. After arriving in Kearney, he was taken to the local hotel, where he was put on display for hundreds of people to come and view. His body was accompanied by the marshal and two deputies. And if you're interested, there are plenty of photos available online if you want to see what they saw. I actually think it's kind of interesting, honestly. Okay. Now, it's not super clear exactly how long his body was on display for. There are a lot of conflicting answers out there and accounts out there when I did research. Jesse was given a full religious funeral in a local church. The church was packed. They opened the funeral with the hymn, What a Friend I Have in Jesus. Following the funeral, Jesse was... Isn't this a little hypocritical? Well, the church later said they did it for his mother. Following the funeral, Jesse was transported to the family home, where he was taken inside to his brother John's room. 
John was in bed recuperating from a medical issue and he had been unable to attend the funeral. And after some time, the casket was taken out into the front yard where it was buried so that his mother could keep watch over it. Jesse's family was extremely distraught. And I don't understand why, because how did they not see this coming? The life he led was so, nothing but violence. Yeah. Nothing but violence. The headstone placed on <coughs> Jesse's grave read, Jesse W. James died April 3rd, 1882, aged 34, six months, 28 days, murdered by a traitor and a coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. Oh, for God's sakes. In 1900, Jesse's wife Z died and was buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery in the James family plot. On June 29th, 1902, Jesse was dug up and moved to be buried next to his wife in the cemetery. His original casket was in such bad shape, he actually had to be placed in a new casket altogether. What a shame. Following his death, Z needed money. She had children to raise and she had no income. She began to charge admission to see the house where Jesse was killed and where she was still living. Ten cents a person to come in. People began to buy Jesse's belongings from her, and then they simply began to steal them. But his possessions weren't enough to satisfy the public. They even began to take chunks from the house and the fence surrounding it. Oh, my God. Now, about a month later, the landlord who owned the house moved in. I'm not sure where Z and the children went. The landlord turned the house into a tourist attraction, complete with 50 bullet holes. The only problem with that was Jesse was only shot once, and the bullet was still in his head at the time of his autopsy. The bullet holes had nothing at all to do with Jesse, but it worked. Oh, yeah. The landlord made at least $1,500 off the scheme, which doesn't sound like a lot of money until you... It's a lot of money way back then. Turns out to be almost $44,000 today. Jesus. We're doing this all wrong. (sighs) No shit. Shoot at my house, will The Ford brothers cashed in on the death of Jesse, too. Not just by the way of the reward. They began to star in a touring stage production of the recreation of the murder of Jesse James. And even I think that's sick and wrong. Well, thought processes were a lot different in the early 1900s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, isn't that when we had the Cherry Sisters? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yes, it is. But they weren't trying to recreate, you know, somebody's murder at all. No, it just sounded like it. (laughs) Following the murder of Jesse James, more than 30 men claimed to be Jesse James. What? Yep. His son, Jesse, believed that his father faked his own death. A man in Granbury, Texas, who went by the name of J. Frank Dalton, was believed to be Jesse. He worked the railroads to support himself. Dalton died in 1951, and his headstone read, Jesse Woodson James. 8 supposedly killed in 1882. If Dalton was Jesse James, that would have made him 107 years old. In 1995, the remains that were buried as Jesse James were exhumed from Mount Olivet Cemetery under a court order with permission from his remaining family, including his great-grandson, a retired judge. DNA testing was conducted. And remember that DNA testing back in 1995 wasn't what it is today. Right. While the testing was not 100% conclusive, the test did rule that the remains buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery were most likely Jesse James, and it was definitive enough to prove he did not fake his own death. Jesse James was reburied for a third time on July 17, 1995. More than 600 people attended the funeral. 
Jesse James was reburied in the family plot next to his wife with his casket draped in Confederate flags because even after all of these years, Jesse James still needs to cause a stir. And as a last little side note to this story. Okay. In St. Joseph, Missouri, which is where he was shot and killed, mm-hmm. there is a, fun- a, a funeral museum in the back room of a large funeral home. It's actually located in a former 1960s supermarket. They have the original 1882 Jesse James Undertaker's wicker basket and ice coffin that the funeral home buried him in, like that used him to transport him for the very first time. And you can go and you can see it. And I find that to be super interesting. Yeah, it might be something we want to do one of these days. They also have the uh, original ledger with the entry that says... Jesse James killed $250 or whatever that they charged. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so, crazy. yeah. Jesse James. And uh, well, there's a lot we didn't know. There's a lot we didn't know. And the idea that they actually kept him on ice and showed his body off to the public. and That does not surprise me. <laughs> the only thing that surprises me is I didn't find that they charged admission. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. I mean... And when, That's a Jesse James we were sort of aware of, but not really. Right. I mean, there's just so much. Oh, yeah. Um, so many, you know, just really interesting. So, like I said, there's lots of pictures available online. Right. Of him. Yeah. And mortuary museums are really fascinating places to go. They're not, to me, it was it, they're not morbid. Oh, no, no. It's just a lot of fascination about how mm-hmm. they did things and why they did things the way they did and... So the one thing that I was really surprised about when I was looking at these pictures is I guess I hadn't thought about the fact that back in, you know, 1882, most guns didn't carry the kind of firepower that we see today. So even though he was shot in the back of the head, he looks fine. Like when you look at these pictures... You can't tell because it didn't. It was was it didn't come yeah, out. Yeah, it was just lodged in his brain. It didn't, you know. Yeah, yeah, just absolutely blown away. So yeah, it was interesting though, and um, but yeah, there are some close up pictures, and you can definitely tell. Like if you look at the eyes, you can tell he's dead. <laughs> Wasn't a bad looking man. No, no, he actually was not a bad looking man when he Even was alive. Even for the life he led, you know. Hmm. Yeah. There's a lot more to his story, but a lot of carnage and a lot of gruesomeness, which I just didn't feel the need to no to share on this podcast. I just thought it was really interesting, all these little, you know, details about, you know, his family and the Pinkerton Agency and the fact that I didn't know he married his first cousin. And nope. I mean, just all these things. And like, he's missing part of his finger. And I just... Thought it was interesting. It was a good story, though. Yeah, just interesting. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Cool. And I know how much you love it when people take dead bodies and travel with them around the country. Yes, I do. Showing them off. Yes, I do. (laughs) Done a couple of those. Yes. Yes, we have. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. We hope you had as much fun as we did. It was fun. We love doing this. And Hannah had a... She does a good story. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I tend to get way too involved in my stories, though, so trying to decide what to include and what not to. Right. 
You know, maybe I will do this story at some point on the other podcast, but I will include all of the deep, dark, ugly, gruesome details. I would. I absolutely would. So, we'll see. Awesome. So, if I do, you'll have to, and you like that kind of thing, you'll have to hop over and listen. Hell yeah. All right. Until next week, guys. Have a wonderful day, and we love you. Stay mischievous. Bye. We here at Tell Me Something I Didn't Need to Know really appreciate the time you spent with us today. Hopefully you learned something unusual today. You can find us on Facebook at Tell Me Something I Didn't Need to Know or at tmsidntk at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at tmsidntk, which are the initials for the title. Suggestions, ideas, comments, corrections, send them our way. We take them all. If you enjoyed your short stop with us, please feel free to follow the podcast. Leave us a rating and review. That lets us know how we're doing and helps others to find us. This podcast is hosted by a couple of sisters who research, write, and edit their own stories. All other editing and production is done by Mary Swartz, and the original artwork was created by Hannah Green.